0: Good morning, Chris. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. Thank you for joining me to discuss the OM246 report.
1: Yes, uh, thanks for inviting me, Micah. Good evening to you, I guess. We're, I think, 13 hours apart, maybe?
0: I think oh, so. Right. In In Bangkok, it's now 8 in the evening. So okay. um, I, I suppose it's a bit colder there than it is here.
1: Uh, likely, yep. Uh, well, you- it was... <laughs> It was um it for those who might be watching around the world, it's nine minus nine degrees here and it's sixteen degrees Fahrenheit. So kind of our coldest morning thus far.
0: Wow. That's yeah, I guess I I, I should be able to tell that by looking at the scarf and the yep. the, the, the headwear. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we we had tried the ATC office hours on the ATC turf Discord, Discord. server. <clears throat> um of oh a month or so ago and i think you you were just getting ready or you'd collected the om246 samples but you hadn't sent them to the lab yet and it was actually your suggestion to say hey maybe we could do one of these again uh and and go through the report and actually uh i don't think we've talked in very much detail about the report i sent it to you you read it but you've also yep. been pretty busy with some end of season stuff haven't you
1: yep Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we had kind of decided that we were going to, once we were wrapped up season-wise, we'd go over this report in detail and do something, you know, maybe a Skype or something of this nature together. And then we thought, well, why not, why not make that something that people could join in on and watch or, you know, either live or recorded? Um, Because I think as a superintendent, when there's any time there's something new that you're going to do, like I'll I'll go back to um, September of 2016 when you were here for the Ryder cup and we were talking about clipping volume and we're getting ready for this event and i'll never forget how you were like oh it would be really nice to know to be measuring the clipping volume from these greens this week and all i could think as you know getting ready for all this uh, <clears throat> for this event is "Oh, i just can't like i can't make my brain think about that right now and um You know i think over the years that's that's an extreme example um but i think over the years um i have found that every time i want to leap into something like this it's hard to get over this this initial hump of i i don't really understand this and i don't really know what it's going to do for me but then once i jump into it and i do it and go th- and and start to see the results or start to accumulate the data then i i really feel good about the decision to do it so my point being that i think if there's anybody watching who has seen uh discussion on this om246 testing uh they've seen the hashtag they followed some discussions um they might think you know hey uh I, that sounds really interesting but uh, it's just something new and i don't know how to get started So from my standpoint as a superintendent, I thought this would be great. Um, I think it was your thinking as well, Michael, let's expose some people to sort of what this data can mean and what this testing can show you. Talk about how we then change the way or or, uh, manage the course because of it. Um, And so hopefully it will be valuable to some people in that regard.
0: I hope so. And it's also, um, it's good because now you're, two or three years into this so we can look at a time series and also talk a little bit about some of the work that's been done to achieve that time series of organic matter change over time or or static organic matter over time that we're going to look at really soon Um, and and how that relates to playability and how that relates to how much work is required so I think uh, sometimes I get so close to this because I've been working on it so much and and looking at the data so much. Uh, it's it's nice to have this type of conversation just uh, to talk about what we can really do with this. And I think yeah. the more people uh, hear about this and learn about it, and once you start collecting the data, it, it I mean, everybody's going to be like, why was I not doing this my entire career? And yeah, and I'm, this is not something I invented I we're gonna get started in the looking at the report really soon but here's something that almost uh, a very few people know Chris uh, who who came up with the OM246 name
1: uh, I, I did I, actually, <laughs> um, and, and I'll never forget I was sitting right here um, and I was sitting right here at my desk and you were sitting over there to my right at a table that's in my office. And this was during the the KPMG um, Women's PGA Championship in in June of 2019, which, um, man, that seems like a long time ago now, but um, in some ways it does. And in some ways it seems not that long ago, but a lot has happened since then. Anyway, um, this I recall that you were thinking about this. You were talking a lot about this testing. I think we had not done it yet here. If I'm not mistaken, I think our first sampling of this was that fall, um, and and you were talking about it, and you asked a good what would be a good hashtag for this testing, and um, I think I thought about it for a few moments, and I came up with this, and so and you liked it, so we went with it, and it it's, it is pretty catchy, so uh, you know if I have to pat myself on the back a little bit, I just I I.
0: I'm forever indebted to you for <laughs> for coming up with such a great hashtag in only five characters and it expresses uh it expresses this in a very pithy, uh and easy to remember way. I think it does. Uh, so so that's good. And but as I was saying, uh I didn't invent this. Um we, I think we came up with the hashtag, but this is something that turf managers in New Zealand and the, the New Zealand Sports Turf Institute have been doing research on this and uh, testing since the early 2000s at least. So this is, let's say we're looking at, at almost 20 years at least of, of people in that part of the world doing this. I think on a similar timeline in, in the UK, because I know STRI has been doing this. Uh, all the all the open championship venues will have this type of data for for their surfaces. And um, Charles Henderson, uh, specifically, um, who who's now uh, not with STRI, but when. He was with STRI, and then shortly after, um, he recommended to me, he, he told me that I should be doing this. It would change the way I thought about a lot of things, and uh, he just said it would be a great thing to do. I need to get started with it. And uh, as I am with some things, I'm uh, very slow to appreciate the value in, in that. And uh, so it, it did take me quite a while, uh, and it wasn't until 20... 2016, 2017, that I really started doing some research into this. And then by, by the summer of 2019, I was uh, ready. I, I'd already done enough research that I was really comfortable with the burn temperature, with the sample size, with leaving the grass on the sample for putting greens, um, and just ready to uh, do this. And so that's why at the 2019 U.S. Open uh, at Pebble Beach, I was talking people's ears off about this and then the next week i was with you but uh uh at the kpmg and and that's when we came up with the hashtag so
1: well um yeah om246 was to the the 2019 kpmg what clipping volume was to the 2016 Ryder Cup <laughs> in my mind. yeah um,
0: that's good golf tournaments it, are great for talking about those kind of things
1: oh they sure are um they sure are and uh yeah, I mean, you and I have had many of those discussions over the years at various tournaments. So it's—I'm uh, sure anybody who's who's followed you on Twitter or spent time with you at a golf tournament will can relate. So,
0: yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, speaking of Twitter, you can follow Tr- Chris on Twitter at at ct underscore turf. Um, all right, Chris, should we should we jump in and start uh, looking at the report?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay, so. Uh, I'm going to share my screen and that pops us there. I, how does this look? No, it's, it's bigger this way. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to show it like this and I'm going to scroll down to the first chart. So there's some, uh, I put a table of contents and then I put a lot of text that I'm not going to go through the, the details right now. We may flash back to that, but let's just go to what I think is the meat of the, of the report, which is the, um, the, the actual results, the, the time series. So, uh, Chris, you actually had done a, a, a tentative uh, uh, like a research sample for me in, in May on May fifteenth of twenty nineteen. That's right. And then, I
1: couldn't I couldn't remember it, that first date. Mm-hmm. And I, I seem to recall it was that fall, but I forgot that we had done the done the the, the research sample um mm-hmm. early before that tournament. Yep.
0: That's right. So so you've got from spring of twenty nineteen, then you've got uh so you kind of have a guess uh through that twenty nineteen growing season, then you have a full set of data from autumn of 2019 then you have all through the 2020 season another sampling and then another so basically two two full seasons and then that first year we can we have a limited amount of, of yep. data
1: yep.
0: so um, I'm gonna check in the chat I think if anybody wants to chat I'm 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 running this through Restream. This might be live on Twitter. I'm not sure. It. I think it's live on YouTube. Um, so I think if you leave comments, they are supposed to show up in my Restream here, which I can see on my screen. So if anybody has questions or comments that they want to leave, um, you can you can go ahead and, and uh, type them in, and I'll I'll try to answer them. So Chris, the uh, the thing that I put these charts first. I think this is the most important. Is the ah, TJ, thank you. TJ says chat test. I can uh, the cool thing we can we can even show this on the screen if yeah, they're really cool. that's cool. So
1: that's uh, that's big commitment from TJ. He's up early here
0: yeah this? i was thinking that's like five in the morning for the guys yeah. on the on the west coast yeah. and where we re- i think our friends in new zealand are hopefully asleep uh, i don't think they're up yet uh in the morning but i'm glad that by by doing this uh, on youtube this will be recorded so people can watch it um in the in the future all right thanks tj all right everybody thank you antonio we've we've see that okay also yeah. awesome so this pops right up cool so these i think we don't have to worry so much about the exact number okay i'm i'm uh i'm seeing that you had 4.9 percent organic matter that means uh by weight there were 49 grams of material burned off which we assume would be organic matter um 49 grams of of material burned off per one kilogram of soil material so that's 4.9 percent that's what what you were at on the samples taken in october 2021 and it was exactly the same in october of 2020 so when you got these results and saw that at the the zero to two centimeter depth that it was the same year after year were you pleased with that chris
1: i was and so um you know last year was the first time in which we went over these results and and you sort of gave a prescribed prescribed amount of sand to apply for the next 12-month cycle and 12-month cycle would be from the time I take one test to the time I take the next test so basically October of 2020 to October of 2021. so that cycle would include any top dressing that we're applying getting ready for winter and then anything that we apply in season. Um, So with last year's report, we had talked about an amount of sand to put down to maintain that level, because you're right, that has been our discussion, is not say, okay, we're at 4.9%, let's try to get to 2.5%, but that we're at 4.9% now, you say to me, tell me, how did the surfaces perform? Can you get the green speed you want? Um, is the firmness the way you'd like it? Are you getting infiltration the way you would want it? Are you having any sort of issues with anything else? And my answers are really to those questions. No. So then you say back to me, okay, that seems like you've got a great surface, a surface that is producing what you want. So let's keep it there. Um, and then the amount of sand prescribed is meant to keep it at that level rather than try to drop it to some level. Um, And, and I I think that accurately describes it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, that's what I think every golf course should be looking at first is how their surfaces are performing and how the organic matter is changing over time. And because we're concerned about how the mo the rollers on a mower roll across a roll across the surface and don't sink in. We're concerned about how the golf ball reacts when it when it lands and, and hits the surface. So yeah. if we want those to be satisfactory, and that could be satisfactory at two, at three, at seven, at twelve. It could be satisfactory at a number of different organic matter levels. Now in the next chart that we look at, the the second chart that I show on the report, we, we sort of compare to what's normal for that particular species. But I think Rather than, than first looking at what's normal for a particular species, I want to consider how the turf is performing, how the yeah. surface is performing, and look at whether there is effective... Um, how, how should we say it? If if the work that's being done has been effective in in creating that surface and moving the organic matter or keeping the organic matter the way that you want it.
1: So um I think I think that's that's um a key to all of this is that um if if I were to just say that you have to have other metrics to tell you that you're you're happy with 4.9%. And so um Mike I think can I just go ahead and share my screen here for a moment? Yeah. I- um let me let me do that, and let me show you just kind of our green our green um, speed data.
0: Yes, please. I hope you can share. <laughs> I hope you're able to share the screen.
1: Uh, let's hold on. I should be able to, but let me just adjust a few things here. Okay. Okay. Here it comes. okay. You see it's my sharing, screen.
0: I see it and I'm going to I'm going to now add that screen to make that live, okay? Okay. There's okay. Chris's Google Sheets.
1: So, um this is a this is all of the green speed data for the year that I record. Most of the time, this is me. Sometimes it's the assistants. You can see most days, it's the whole numbers are going across from the left to the right. So you can see there's just, uh, I take a lot of green speeds on a lot of days throughout the course of the season. Now, here's here's what I want to share is the the graph um, showing these speeds and the seven-day average of these speeds. And I think that this is really important because if if I were looking at because this tells me is 4.9%. This is one of the data points that tells me is 4.9% um, getting us the results that we want. And so if we look at this, <clears throat> um, this is about the middle of June. Um, and you can see our average speed kind of climbs above 12 and stays there until we did a, an air event in the beginning of August and then it falls down as, as one would expect. But so the point is, is that through the middle of the summer, the peak summer season here at Hazeltine, um, we're able to maintain a, a green speed that our members desire. And, and the point isn't that saying, it should, you should be above this number. It's, it's, this is gonna be course specific. But if you're maintaining the level of speed that you, and, and smoothness, smoothness is another thing that goes with this, let me show you those data. So I've, here is uh, data from a, um, a smoothness rating that I do every day, the STRI um, smoothness rating. Michael, we can maybe talk a little bit more about that. I know you blogged about it a little bit. Maybe you can share links I've, or something. So,
0: Yeah, I I actually have one of your bobble test charts kind of queued okay. up to share later, okay. possibly.
1: Great. So this is just that, that data. And I take that every time I stimp and I watch how the ball rolls. And um, I don't have a chart that goes with this, but this is just the data, so um, we'll talk about that. But to me, um, when you look at green speed um, plus the smoothness is is telling me, are we getting what we want from these surfaces? So that's a that's a quick way to just check um, that you're so let's go. OK, I can stop sharing now, Mike. Uh, we'll go back to your your charts. Um, the the point in showing that is, is you have to know, you have to have a, a, a metric or a data points. I think that are telling you if you're if you're meeting the goals of your, your clientele, in our case our members. And you know, a public course it's the it's the case of the people who are, coming and, and paying green fees. So then we can go back to four point nine percent organic matter in the top two centimeters, and say, yep, that's that's a number that we can stay at and we'll be happy with.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, I, I, um, I agree completely and I just, I, I guess I've, I've done a blog post about this also where I said, uh, I, I noticed something as, as more and more people do this test um, for the for the first time a lot of people get results that are like seven eight nine ten eleven percent organic matter right at the surface and um, and yet the the surfaces are performing well and if you look at different greens on the property the healthiest greens always have the most organic matter so um, guys will get like seven percent eight percent nine percent, on on their samples you know that they'll submit six samples get a range like that and instantly the reaction or the response to me is i want to reduce this by two percent or reduce this by three percent but i look at it i'm like wait a second which is your healthiest green out there Uh, and it's often the healthiest green almost always the healthiest green has the the most uh organic matter so then it's like wait a second why why do you want all the organic matter to go down to the level of your worst grain so let's let's think about what we're doing and think about maybe just keeping it stable um, so things don't get softer so they don't hold too much water at the surface yep so this is
1: in this in this chart as you say that these outlined circles are the individual measurements um and and I would say, and I know this, it's not the way that we look at this data, but I know which ones are which, and I know that our healthiest green is this top circle, the highest OM mm-hmm. in the two in the two centimeters, and our our least green that struggles the most is the lowest. There's there's that's 100 percent true, and I sampled those two greens uh, purposely to to be able to look at that.
0: Chris, that this uh, this would be a good time to answer a question from TJ. Um, Eric, I see, Eric, I see your questions, uh, and I'm going to answer those later, but TJ was just asking about the average. Uh, yep. he said, how many greens are you sampling to determine that average number? And, uh, Chris, I'll answer for you. Uh, sure. yep. you did uh, what, what we're looking at here, the average number at the OM, Two depth, the zero to two centimeter depth, that's six greens, um, if I remember correctly, and then uh, that's correct. Definitely the the two to four centimeter depth and the four to six centimeter depth, those are um, three greens because it tends to be a lot more consistent at the once you go just the tiniest bit below the surface, it's it's more consistent, and I don't think it's necessary to pay lab fees to. Just keep getting the same number over and over. So mm-hmm. we, I recommend spend a little bit of extra money to sample a few more at the surface. That's where the ball is reacting. That's where the mower is rolling, and that's where I think we we need to be a little bit more precise.
1: Yep, Eric. And then Eric asked the same a similar question. So the way that, the question that he asked: Are you sampling three at two, four, six, and more at at zero to two? And that's exactly it. Yep. That's so right Six greens six greens are in the two centimeter average, zero to two and then three greens in the others.
0: yep, yep. that's that's what we're doing. So I generally recommend uh, to do zero to two two to four, four to six centimeter depth on three greens and then do an additional three greens uh, just at the zero to two centimeter depth that that's generally what I would recommend.
1: And it should, I think we're going to move on from this chart, Micah, but before we do, I think um, just a a statement to those watching, like we're not, you and I aren't really discussing the two to four and the four to six. Um, We look at that, nice to have, good to have that information, see if anything's changing dramatically, but there's no real intent to use those numbers to change anything at this time. Um, That's right. I I, i
0: I. I would suggest to everybody to look at the two to four centimeter depth and see how that hasn't changed over time. And yet, if I, you did a dry jack this year, last year, I don't think you did any. Uh, Uh, Last year it
1: was a, it was a solid tank filled with sand.
0: Okay. So just doing what we would call relatively minimal amount of of holes and and getting sand down below the surface and it's still staying pretty flat and then it is coming up at the four to six centimeter depth but we'll look at the next chart um and see that that's nothing to be concerned about in in fact i mean organic matter is a good thing so we could say that's just Mm -hmm. the root zones getting better and better for for grass to grow
1: yeah, that's you know these are USGA greens. I don't think we've we've talked about that. They were built in 2010, so they're they're 10 years old. Um, you know, a USGA green. Some people consider that to have about a 20 year lifespan, 25 maybe, 30 maybe. So we're you know approaching one third to one half of what many would think would be the lifespan of a USGA green. Um, and and one thing that I I have noticed, um, not to get too far off track, but Micah talks about organic matter being a good thing is. You know, in a USGA green, you don't see this, this tremendous rooting depth. We have three greens um, on a <clears throat> south uh, chipping area, practice area, that are not USGA. And when you pull a plug out from a cup, the whole thing, the root mass is the whole plug. But when you pull a plug out from a, uh, a USGA green, you have really great rooting up in the top. But let's say in the two to uh, the zero to six centimeter range. But below that, there's really nothing. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with the amount of organic matter that's down there. So yeah, I would say building it up a little bit in the two to four and the four to six is not gonna be a a long-term problem.
0: Very, very good. Um, And Eric has another comment here, which I agree with. I'll show that comment. Uh, He thinks that more samples at the zero to two centimeter depth uh, given that the two to six centimeter depth remains largely unchanged in his sampling. So Eric's at, uh, Chambers Bay in, in the state of Washington. And, uh, I, I've done this type of sampling at, uh, different continents, different countries, different grass types. And it's pretty consistent that, that you tend to see very little change over time at the, at the depths below two centimeters which i think there's there's all kinds of implications for that but the obvious one is uh, how necessary is it to punch holes and get and remove material from from down below or how necessary is it to punch holes and put sand down into those holes um, at that depth below the surface uh, for the purpose of managing organic matter. Now, there may be some other reasons for doing it, but for the purpose of managing organic matter, it would seem that it may not, not be necessary. Can I, uh, let's go down to the the fancy chart, TJ's yep. favorite. All right, so. I I get to make these reports and I get to put the ones that I think are most important at the top, but this is the prettiest one and the fanciest one, and TJ thought this was pretty interesting. Um, This this is my favorite one. We're showing some density curves uh, of all samples of that particular species, and then we're showing percentiles um, of how your most recent samples compare to what's normal for those particular um, for that particular species. So here we're looking at bank grass greens, creeping bank grass greens.
1: Do you think, Micah, that um, again getting to the the idea that well, let me ask i'm trying to think of how to ask this question it's been it's been easy for me to understand the fact that i don't want to chase some low number so when i look at these charts and i look at 0 to 2 and i see that we're at 4.9 and that uh, 29% of golf courses are below us it would be easy maybe to think oh like that is a number that we need to get to we need to get to the point where only 10 percent are below us and i need to chase this 2.4 this absolute do you um do you find and maybe not maybe people that you work with understand sort of the idea of keeping it in a in a range that's good for that particular course but do you fight fight that with anybody you work with where they want to chase this low number or you know how do we we talked about it a little bit but I, i wonder how we get away from that idea
0: Um, fortunately, I haven't had to deal with that particular issue yet. Um, and, and if somebody did want to go that low, I would say that that's, I, I don't recommend it because, um, once you start going to the, the tails, um, we've talked about whether the word margin (laughs) should be used or, or tails but this type of curve i would call it a tail when we go to the left or go to the right once we start going there you realize there's not there's not very many grass greens at 2.4 percent so that means there's not very many good performing grass greens at 2.4 percent so mm-hmm. then it's like uh w- w- no i uh, so so that's the type of thing that i would try to explain to people and just say uh, please please try to keep it closer to the middle I mean yep. if that that's what I would be trying to do so no the I mean I kind of assume that everybody knows what this test is and why we're getting a number like 4.9 percent and saying there's only 29 percent of bent grass greens are expected to be below that um, this is is a test where we're not we're not measuring soil organic matter the way that testing for soil organic matter is defined. Um, soil organic matter is defined by the soil Society, soil Science Society of America in their glossary as uh, the organic material in the soil that excludes any living or dead undecomposed plant material. Now, um, that that becomes problematic when you start looking at, Samples that might have thatch or mat in it and on a golf course putting green we want to know what's happening with the thatch and mat because that's what so much of the top dressing is done to manage that's what so much of the coring verticutting, cutting dryjecting and so on is done to to manage and um, the problem is conventional testing is is more for soil nutrients for the humic material in the soil and it it removes all of the thatch and mat before testing it what the OM246 test does is measures everything. And that's why we get a number like 4.9% and think, yeah, that's relatively low. If it was, if this was a a typical soil organic matter test, we'd be thinking that it would be something like 1.5%, but, but we're measuring here everything, which I think is one of the beautiful things of this test.
1: Yeah. And you know, somebody might ask, I'm just, uh, looking quickly to look at our soil nutrient report and see because if somebody out there is watching this and thinking well what does how does that translate to the uh the soil organic matter as as I want to say normally that might as as people would normally hear it so soil organic matter um from a normal soil nutrient analysis test
0: yeah you'd
1: uh, be one, is one, one average of 1.5 1. 1. percent 1.5
0: That's, that's very normal. And when we did the uh, global soil survey, which had 100 samples from putting greens from explicitly good performing putting greens from all over the world, um, the average value for organic matter in that which goes down to a zero to 10 centimeter depth and screens off all of the the undecomposed living and dead plant material, the average there was 1.6 for putting greens. Mm -hmm. So the, those, that's one kind of organic matter. This is something different. This is total. I I say organic matter sometimes. And sometimes I say total organic material. So that's, that's awesome. Like, uh, Hazeltine national golf club is a tournament venue. And, uh, I know it's renowned for having a, um, very active uh, golfing membership with really um, competitive and fine players. And so I think it's kind of normal for me to say, yeah, I I kind of like you uh, in the lower percentile because that means you should be able to dry the greens down uh, and get a nice firmness and be able to control the moisture and so on. So I look at that number and, and it's just like, yeah, that's nice. And then we try to figure out what work should be done to um, keep it that way.
1: Yep. Should we, should we, would it be worth touching on? Because one of the things I think you you and I have both heard and is uh, a focus when it comes to putting surfaces on, on um, infiltration rate. And there, there may be people watching who, who are wondering about that and wondering, you know, if we look at that, or how this might relate to that, um, should we touch on that?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. I I did a blog post um, earlier this year, so if you if you go to AsianTurfgrass.com and and search for infiltration rate, uh, you can find my comments uh, about that and citing some research articles that said it's it's something that you may not need to worry about so much. Um, obviously, uh, that is critical, uh, to having a good performing putting surface, because if your infiltration rate is not rapid enough, then your surfaces are going to be too wet. Um, I think that that's something you can see with your eyes when it rains or when you irrigate. And the other thing is, you can measure soil moisture over time. And if you consistently see that after saturating rain events or after um, irrigation events that fill the soil to field capacity, if, if the field capacity number that you're measuring with soil moisture meters keeps going up and up, that to me tells me you have a problem with infiltration rate or if you right. see puddling or something. Um, but I'm just... I don't worry about measuring it because I think it's quite difficult to measure and it's like chasing after numbers that seem meaningless to me. I mean that that's my that's my yeah. thought about it. So I I'm like obviously it's critically important. Yep, but I don't want to measure it. I I want to see it and feel it.
1: Right. And to, to me it's a part of that that group of and there may be no data. I don't have a chart that shows it because uh, we don't really measure it, but all of the things you just said, you know, our observations are telling us whether that is something that's a problem, and it. And I don't see that it is. You know, we, we can get lots of rain, and while the greens might puddle or, um, you know, become, have surface water on them initially, like in, in a downpour, um, as soon as the rain slows or it stops, um, it goes away very quickly I mean in the amount of let's say in the amount of time that it would take let's say there's a a downpour that stops play um we're gonna have the U.S amateur in 2024 so let's say um the 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 players are out there and a lightning comes in and the players are removed from the course and we get a, a downpour and in the course of an hour and a half we get two inches of rain there may be um water that come that shows up on the surface, there may be some brief, but by the time the players would go back out to the course to play, that would be all gone. And um, you know, I mean to me that's that's playing I don't need a hundred some inches per hour or whatever the you know a USGA green is built at um because that's just you know almost <laughs> obscene and um unnecessary for for you know the way that golf is played. So
0: hmm yeah so yeah, this is a a question that some people have about infiltration rates. So thank you for for bringing that up. I, um, and it, it's it, to me, it's not really related to this because here we're just looking at organic matter. And I, um, I'm assuming that the more organic matter, the more organic material we have in the surf in the in the soil, the more water it's going to be able to hold, and. Based on how much water it can hold, that's also going to have an effect on how firm the surfaces are. So I'm, I'm looking at the criteria here being uh, how firm or soft the surfaces are and uh, how much water it's holding. And I think infiltration rate, um, if the surfaces are constantly too wet, the infiltration rate is not fast enough. It seems obvious to me. So I'm just like, let's, let's solve the problem that way. Let's solve it the easy way and, uh, not try to inflate some kind of numbers.
1: If, if and it probably, you know, I, I wonder, um, I'm going to share my screen one more time, Micah. Cool. And, um, and talk because I do measure firmness as well. And, um, that's something we're, we're measuring on a, a, a weekly basis and measuring on three of the greens in which we, um, we do our our 246 sampling um so here we can see this is a a scatter plot of uh we use a cleg hammer
0: okay I'm, older, I'm gonna share i'm gonna yeah, i just two, see that yeah, there, there we go. go
1: okay so here this is a, a scatter plot um and the the firmness is over here on this side um and this is the the number that comes up on the particular Clegg that we use we've been using uh it was uh i'm borrowing it from from doug soldat in wisconsin um, and then the this is the moisture average moisture so i go out to these greens these three greens and i take nine spots i take the moisture and then i take the firmness from the exact spot that the moisture was taking and i write it down and then i, I input that data over here on the left so you can see that so this is this is the average. This scatter plot is the average of 883 different um, samples during the course of the year on these three across these three greens. This is a scatter plot. Uh, whoops, where did it go? Right here of every single measurement. Just that gets to be a little blobby, but um, nonetheless. So these are the averages. So each day that I would go out and take these measurements, which ended up being 27 per per day, nine per Per green on three greens, this would be the average. Um, and so again, this is another data point that's telling us if the organic matter that we have in that top two centimeters is something that is acceptable. Um, you know, if this if this line were, um, like if you want to talk about your 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 uh, knowledge of charts and such is far greater than mine. So if you want, to-
0: <laughs> right? So that. That chart uh, is showing that there's not a perfect relationship um, between soil moisture and uh, how firm the surfaces are. But with that particular meter, the the higher the firmness level, the um, I, the the more firm the greens are, the higher the number will be. And what you see, because that line goes down from left to right through those data, and actually you're your other chart is even more clear about that. If you if you scroll up to the the jump like the jumble of points, yep. you you can see that it's not all the points don't fall on a line. There's a lot of scatter around the line, which means you can have greens that are a little bit drier and soft. You could have greens that are a little bit wetter and firm. But in general, what that's showing is that the the surfaces are more firm when it's dry and and then they they soften up a little bit as it gets closer to field capacity but it it also shows that it never gets so wet that the firmness gets too that that it gets too soft so it's it's what you'd expect for a for a place like hazeltine
1: now it'll be interesting as this data gets collected year after year you know i would come back to these charts and tell me if i'm wrong micah but i'd look at it and i would say is there some sort of like drift that takes place you know, does, does, uh, you know, and, and one would think that as you get to, like, if you can stay around 4.9 to 5% or somewhere in that region, you're going to get similar results year after year. But, you know, knowing, having this info, it will tell us, is there some sort of, you know, are we drifting to, to firmer? Or are we drifting to wetter, drier, firmer, softer? Um, we'll, we'll have that info.
0: Yeah. I, <clears throat> I should have, andrew mcdaniel on here sometime um and hopefully he will join me and we can look at an even longer time series of this type of data from a golf club in japan where we have data on firmness and soil moisture and and some other uh playability parameters from 2013 up until the present and it's interesting it it i never would have thought that it would be so valuable to have these data and look at it year after year. Um, And for Andrew, it's for a professional tournament that they have the last week of August every year. And um, so he doesn't have the full set of data for the entire year, but he has it for just one week, just one week in August for the past uh, nine years or so. And it's tremendously helpful to be able to to adjust the maintenance work to prepare the surfaces for the tournament, year after year, and, and to see that firmness keep going up and to see the green speed, uh, reaching the target level and then just staying there year after year, it's, it's pretty cool. And, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the OM246 stuff came uh, because he re and what Andrew realized on those Zoysia greens was they, they grow so slow that they don't really recover well from the type of intensive maintenance work that that I was recommending. I was telling him they have too much organic matter. You need to make it firmer. You should be punching holes, putting sand, punching holes, putting sand. But if he did that, uh, he's got a tournament the last week of August. He, he couldn't really have the recovery time that he wanted and be able to slow down the, the growth of the grass to get the green speeds. At the Uh, At that time of year and so he kind of moved away from top dressing so much moved away from punching holes and I supported that uh, Because the surfaces kept getting better and better and the fewer holes he punched the firmer it got but at the same time I was quite concerned. This is in uh, 2015 2016 going into 2017 that time frame is like man, we need to be really careful that there's not something happening under the surface with organic matter accumulation that we're not catching. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it could be all of a sudden it rains during the tournament and everything was all perfect. And then all of a sudden your mowers sink in and scalp. And it's like, oh, I guess we weren't making such a good decision about skipping all of this work that that the textbooks say that we should be doing. And that's when I turned to the OM246 testing and was like, I really need to do this because I realized that the testing that we were doing uh, otherwise just for nutrients was discarding this material that we wanted to measure.
1: It seems to me that anytime there's a discussion when it comes to golf um, maintenance, a maintenance of golf course putting surfaces, that the fear that any, manager golf course turf manager has in reducing what they're doing no matter what it is uh no matter whether it's uh some kind of cultural practice uh some kind of watering some kind of um nutrient application you know potassium it it, the fear is of some sort of unintended consequence you know some sort of um you know uh, I remember i was I was talking about our our lack of potassium applications at GIS a number of years ago. I mean this is five, six, seven, eight years ago or so. It was in Orlando a number of cycles ago. and And one of the questions that somebody from the back of the room asked was, aren't you don't you fear that you're gonna your turf is 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 moving towards uh, imminent collapse or, or something of that nature? and that you know at some point there was just gonna be this, I was going to walk in, you know, one, leave one night and the golf course was going to be great and come in the next morning, the golf course was going to be dead. Um, but I don't, I don't think any of these things work in that way. Um, and, and that to me is the key. If you look at data, you think about collecting data. And I know when people hear about it, who aren't doing it, they think, oh my gosh, what a hurdle to get over. And, and what am I going to do with this? But, um, what it's doing is it's confirming and allowing for us a reduction of, um, some of the things that we thought were necessary to maintain a good golf course. We've been able to reduce those, uh, items, minimize them, do the, do them the least amount possible, um, and, and have the data to tell us that, you know, we're not in any danger here. We're not creating undue harm. Um, Chris, I think I this think
0: would be, this yeah. would be a great time to, to, uh, answer tj's question he yeah. he said uh can you talk about the practices that allow you to sustain these levels and speeds and smoothness yep. and yep. then uh, he said specifically like uh top dressing events mm-hmm. annual depths needle tining things like that
1: yep so let's um i'll stop sharing mine like i don't know if we we'll go back to your charts let's go back i think those will be more relevant to what i will um do you want me to bring
0: up the chart of the smoothness that has your yeah let's, let's
1: bring that that's a good one that's a good one yes
0: okay so i think i can stop sharing this screen and then i think i can share a different one right um So now here's our, our bobble test chart. And uh, so yeah, I think, this, this will so be you,
1: great for this discussion.
0: So this was uh, this one was only updated through like early September, um, mm. but you didn't do any more events until the end of the season. So this allows you to show what you did this year.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, so let me try to explain how I've thought about uh, course maintenance and cultural practices over the last, you know, in general, I've always felt as a superintendent, I want to do the least possible to the golf course to get the, the best possible results. So I want to, our results and what we desire are at a high level. And then to do that, I, I think, okay, what, what is the least amount I can do to, to get to that level? and not do anything that that isn't necessary. And so um, a story from the the 2019 KPMG, this is when I started to sort of realize, let's use top dressing as an example, okay? Um, It's very um, normal in this industry to top dress on a regular basis every week, every two weeks, every month. And now let me just disclaim this by saying I'm not suggesting that this will work in every situation, but it works for us, and this is this is just how we think about it. So I'm not telling you, if you're managing Ultradorf Bermuda, this is gonna work for you, or if you're managing POA, this is gonna work for you, but this is what I've found works well for us. So um, put that filter on this information and then um, use it uh, to your advantage. <laughs> okay, so in, in 2019, we come out of winter, The the KPMG, the women's pga is the third week of june we come out of winter we had a, a tough winter with a lot of ice that year and our greens were a little bit um we had suffered i don't even want to call it a little maybe a little winter kill on some north facing slopes where we had some ice this is even on bent grass and so we come out and it's it's the the turf is slow to recover and then we had a really cool i would call it cold spring leading up to that event. We have A4 bent grass, which anybody who has it in a northern region will know it grows and greens up very slowly in the spring. So we had all those sort of things working against us. So the PGA of America gets here and we start working on getting the course ready. We're about 10 days out. And the the greens are just a little bit bumpy, a little bit um, not as smooth as we'd like. So we decide to top dress and it's a little bit closer to a tournament than a person would typically top dress but that was the right call at the time it really did improve the greens and then we actually did it one more time i think just three days before the the practice round started and that was all fine the, the greens were great michael was there we were you know he was he was helping us stimp and, and we were looking at smoothness and the greens were really fantastic um but we were mowing and rolling double cutting on turf that was just sort of like really waking up really hadn't gotten uh a chance to sort of um, grow and and form a great surface early in the the year before we started doing all that work. Plus there's this sand on there that we're constantly rolling and mowing over the top of. Then we go into our normal season and about a month after the event, three weeks after the event, we're gonna host our invitational. And I decide as I normally would about 10 days before that, we're gonna top dress because that's kind of the, the routine. And we did and then it got really hot and we had our event and we did a lot of mowing and rolling during that event and the greens just declined after that event. And a lot of it was just this, I could looking at them, this was this physical damage to the leaf that, um, I mean, those of you who who maintain bentgrass in 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 during the summer will know if you damage bentgrass or get any kind of like physical damage to the leaf tissue, the plant just declines really quickly um it's not very traffic tolerant is is I guess my so then we go into 2020 which is of course a pandemic year and for various reasons uh short staff um you know this this whole top dressing and decline of the turf in the back of my head we come into the spring and you know it gets to be to the first the first time of the year where we're going to top dress and I think you know what if we just skip that this year so we skip it we have a tournament greens are great collecting all this data collecting speed um, you know, green speed, clipping volume, all that and everything's great, okay? Then we get to our next tournament event and we're, it's, we're, we're ready to top dress. and I think let's let's not do it. We're not, the greens are great. They, they look the smoothness is great, the speed is great. Let's not top dress. So we go through the whole golf season, uh, never putting any sand down uh, ahead of events. There was no bi-weekly top dressing, monthly weekly whatever it was. We just we just lived with the sand we had put down going into winter until we got to our aerification date which is at the beginning of august and the greens were great we aerified, we grew out of that and we didn't put sand down again until we were closed for the year so this got me to thinking i, I that i think we don't you know the this was the, these were the best greens we'd had since i had been here and it was the least amount of sand i put down in season so um now my mind is thinking okay there's some amount of sand we need to put down but um let's think about what the windows are going to look like for putting that sand down and what is the actual real amount of sand we need to put down not just some arbitrary you know light dusting two times a week two times a week and it builds up to whatever it is but let's find out what that amount really is and then put it in the smallest number of windows possible so that our golfers and our surfaces are impacted the least, as, as little as possible, by that sand. Because I've seen, and you can see, now we're gonna to get to this uh, this chart of the the bobble test and the smoothness rating. Um, I've seen when you put sand down, that there is a decline in the smoothness of the surface and the quality of the surface. And over the years, just sort of anecdotally, I have heard that from our membership who, who didn't like the sort of roller coaster of, of, of surface quality that took place when we would top dress and then build back up and then top dress and build back up. Um, they didn't enjoy that. So, you know, I'm really trying to create a, a surface that replicates a championship event for our members for as many days as possible during the course of the season. And because we're closed in the winter, we open about April 15th and we close just about Halloween, you know, that that period of time is quite small. Um, relative to places that are open for longer or open all year long. So, you know, that that's our goal. That's sort of the the overriding goal that and experience that I want to give our membership. So if you look at this chart, maybe, Micah, do you want to just explain this chart a little bit again? Your explanation of charts is far better than mine. So, so
0: all right. So this is another one that's on my website. If you search Bobble test, B O B B L E, um, Search that on my website. You can pull up this post and read about it and and study the chart at your leisure. Uh, this is quite an interesting one. I I don't remember if I recommended to Chris to start measuring bobble tests this year, or he told me that he was going to. I think maybe I, I think- was thinking we came to the same conclusion it would be a useful measurement to have
1: yeah i think somewhere there was a discussion involving you potentially jason haynes um about this test and we talked about it and and we thought this this seems like a good combination with green speed and it's it's easy to do i'll let i'll let mike well i can explain how how i take the test um it's essentially this is a visual rating um and when I stimp the green, I watch the ball roll across the green, and I give it a rating on a on a scale of one to ten. And uh, um, <laughs> I give it a scale uh, a rating on a scale of one to ten as the ball rolls across. And I watch for the ball chattering across the surface. I watch for any big bobbles that the ball might take across the surface, and I watch for any sort of snaking that the ball might do. So as the ball rolls, and you, you, we'll roll three balls as we stimp, um, I'll, I'll rate each one, and and then I'll I'll add those numbers up. So if it's three nines, it's a twenty-seven. If it's three eights, it's a twenty-four, um, and and that's how I I get this rating. So then I put it in my spreadsheet, which I shared before, as a as a twenty-seven, a twenty-six, a twenty-five, whatever that those three ratings would be added up, and then the spreadsheet, I have a formula that, that averages it all out to give, uh, a, um, bobble test score across all of the greens that were stimped that particular day. So that's where this number comes from. So you can see, even though it's a scale one to 10, we really, we had a six in here that was right after we had dryjected and there was a lot of sand and a lot of, so you can see in a, in a Northern climate during the season, you're really not going to go below six, but, um, you know, I, we've, so Mike and I have talked about it and you, he has this dotted line across eight. Eight is is, is really when a golfer puts a ball, if you have an eight, uh, the golfer is going to deem that to be nearly perfect. Um, eight yeah. is a really good score.
0: Right, so this is showing through the season uh, starting in early April at the first mowing. Uh, so this, uh uh the first asterisk down there by April 1st. That's the first mow of the season, which was on uh, April the 6th this year. And it started off a little bit below eight, but quickly with mowing uh, and a little bit of rolling, the that average every day got up above eight and it stayed there until a heavy sand top dressing on May 11th. And on, on May 11th, that's the second asterisk. So that was a top dressing of about uh 0.8 millimeters which would have been that's about uh three cubic feet that's about three cubic feet per thousand square feet if i I'm- sort of
1: deemed that when i put down that 0.8 millimeters in may um, that was with no holes so that was just sand on top um, dragged in to me that was about the limit of for, for our situation of sand that I would want to put on without having any holes or anywhere for the sand to go, that was pretty heavy on a, on a surface to then send golfers out to play on. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And then, afterwards. and then after you do that, you can't roll as much as you want to because you would just beat up right. the grass. So then you yep. uh, it's, it's, it's keeping the value down a little bit. So it took a couple weeks to get back up to nine where it was before the top dressing and then it's it got so good where it was above nine every day that you just stopped measuring it. And you were you were only going to flag it if something happened. Right. And so you went for all through the peak season up until early August, um, right up uh, above nine, which is basically perfect. And yep. then then you did the dry in early August. And after that, it, it took a couple weeks to get back uh, up above eight consistently. Yep.
1: Yep, And this chart stops in about mid-September, but uh, it it does go – I don't know if my pointer shows up on the screen, but it does go up above 9 right after this and then stays above 9 for the rest of the season until we closed. So
0: so this is the kind of thing that Chris said it very well. This may not work everywhere, but um – you know, I, I'd always been using the example of Kea Golf Club and, and what Andrew was doing and achieving with those Cori greens with basically two top dressings a year and not punching holes. And I think it's intriguing. And I always say, okay, it may not work everywhere, but it certainly works at this place. And uh, to see this type of thing happen at Hazeltine also, uh, where you're, you basically in season put sand two times this year, and have spectacular results. I, I think it's exciting because it suggests that now there's two courses in the world that can do this. And I, I know there's a lot of other people out there that are, that are doing this, getting great results, and they know that we haven't discovered anything new because they already know this. But definitely, there's a mainstream. Uh, type of management style that I used to teach in seminars. I used to write articles about it and tell people they needed to put more sand out. And I know there's there's a lot of people that kind of teach what the standard way should be. And and what you're doing is, is not quite the standard way. And so that's why it's always risky to do things in the non-standard way. And I think that's where there's a tremendous value in the OM246 testing to measure what's going on and not only does it tell you that maybe you don't have to do so much, if you're not doing enough, it's going to tell you that too. And yep. in fact, I I um, answered some questions today about a OM two six OM two four six report for for somebody who'd done it for the first time, and and I recommended trying to bring the numbers down a little bit. So I calculated how much sand should be applied next year and said, that's what I would recommend for next year. Let's see if we can drop this a little bit.
1: Yep. And we you know even even our report, which we, we hadn't gone over and I, I don't know that we need to, but we have I had mentioned earlier these three greens that are on the south end of the, the, our practice area. They're practice greens. They're not USGA greens. They don't have the same construction as our course greens, but our members have asked that they represent or are more similar to when the ball lands are the greens that we have on the golf course. And so we tested them this year and they were part of our um, testing regime. And then we, you gave a recommendation, Mike, on what you think we need to do to those greens next year, over the next few years to get them back into the range uh, or get them closer to the range that the, the course greens are at, so. Mm-hmm.
0: And those, if I, rem- if I remember right, they needed a couple more millimeters of sand.
1: I think we talked about three, potentially, I think your recommendation might've been three times the sand depth that we're gonna do on the greens on the course, so.
0: Something like that. Yeah. Um,
1: there's a there's a question from Carl. Yeah, let's um, let's
0: let's answer all the questions now, and then talk uh, about how our time's going, and if you want to continue. Sure. Um, why don't you answer Carl's, and then we'll answer Eric's from a while ago.
1: Sure. So I think just to um, can you put there we go. Um, so I, I spoke a little bit about this, but it, it is a good point. Um, the perceived risk of not doing things that are normal or not doing things that are traditional. Um, And the idea that if we don't do those, um, bad things can happen. So I think one way to think about that is, and I don't want to say anything that's going to be offensive to any of our members, but look, members vote with their feet, you might say, or they vote with their eyes um, in that what I mean by that is that members vote by the conditions. They, they, you know, if the conditions are good, that's really all they care about. Um, I've not yet met a member in my 15 years as a superintendent who really cares what practices you're doing to get to those conditions. Um, they care what it is. When they go out and play, is it good? If it was good today, is it going to be good tomorrow? Is it going to be good the next time I play? Or, you know, I come out and play on a, I played on a, I played last Friday. Golf course was great. Perfect in in my mind. Now I play next Wednesday. Is it going to be the same as it was last Friday? Or is it some diminished version of what I played on Friday because they did some maintenance on Monday that has now reduced the quality of the surface to some amount and, and now we have to build it back up. And that, that was one thing I, I did hear from our members. It was in a green committee meeting. And, and they were, were saying, you know, I just feel like the course is sort of consistent, inconsistent. And I said, OK, well, we'll focus in on that. Because I need more information so that I can do a better job of, of changing that. What's inconsistent? Well, the greens. OK, well, what is it about the greens? Is it, well, it's the sand. Okay. So then we talk about it. And that was during a time when I was regularly top dressing every two weeks and we would top dress oftentimes on a Sunday evening. Uh, then we wouldn't mow on a Monday. Maybe we wouldn't mow on a Tuesday um, mow and roll on Wednesday. And okay. So for that weekend, the, the, the quality of the greens start to come back. And then by the second weekend, the quality is, is great. So let's say somebody plays on that second weekend, Friday, Saturday and the greens are awesome. Then they play the next Wednesday. They bring a guest out and they tell their guest, wow, gosh, I played this weekend and the course was, the greens were spectacular. Now, since they last played, we've top dressed, we've skipped a couple days of mowing, uh, maybe skipped a day of rolling, and they come out with guests on a Wednesday and it's just not the same. And maybe they play early in the morning and their ball is accumulating because there's moisture on the greens and there's sand, a little bit of sand on the ball, and this was, and I totally understand this. Look, a lot of superintendents might say, "Well, hey, that's what we need to do to have the course be great um, tomorrow." But I, I can relate to a person who is a member at a club and wants to have these great conditions every single day. Uh, that, if that was me, and I wasn't growing the grass and I was just playing the golf, I can. I can see where that would be irritating so that is sort of one of the things that got me to thinking you know how can we have more days of of great conditions and not ride this sort of roller coaster of conditions um which largely in my mind were coming because of top dressing so that that um carl i don't know that i'm answering your question but um no member that uh, at our, at this club is going to say, well, shouldn't you be top dressing more? Shouldn't you be top dressing every other, every other week? Um, They're just, they don't care about that. What they care is that the conditions are good every day that they play. And of course they want the conditions to be good or better the next year. So that I think is why all of this testing and data accumulation is, is, has become so important to what we do here um, is because that is telling me are we meeting the goals that they have? Are we losing ground in any way? You know, I, I like to. I just I just recorded a seminar for the a virtual for virtual GIS this year, and I, I said you know this is no different than a person who records their weight every morning or record records their blood pressure on a regular basis. You know, looking out for potential um, hiccups. You know, if 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 you um, if you don't record your weight every morning, let's say and you have a a week of holiday eating, and you feel like um, nothing has changed, but you have gained 10 pounds, and then sort of in your mind, that 10 pounds becomes, that's the new normal, and you're not paying attention to it. And then let's say the next Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, and maybe Christmas week, you gain another 10 pounds. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, 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 uh, I'm just giving an example here that isn't golf course related. Um, Now, all of a sudden you're 20 pounds from where you think you should be and you're not aware of that because the changes sort of happen slowly and you haven't noticed it. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, geez, something's not right here. And you step on a scale and you're like, wow. So if you're looking at these numbers every day or at whatever interval makes sense, you know, OM246, it only makes sense to to me and to, to Micah to do it once a year. But green speed every day, smoothness every day. Um, firmness once a week. whatever that that amount of time is, it's 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 telling you if something's going wrong, if something's happening that is unintended um, based on what your your goals are. Um so, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, Carl. I think that um, you know some of the the feedback I get on this from from colleagues is, you know this thing of concern. It's easy to continue doing what we've always done when we know that we're getting the results we want. But I think, and this has been something Mike and I have talked about a lot over the years, and and even, um, yeah, you know, I teach the bentgrass course with Doug Soldat in GIS, I've heard Doug talk about it. Doug just did a great uh, podcast with Joe Gilotti, um, in which they talked about this subject. I think we're doing too much. I think we're doing, you know, this Monday maintenance thing has become this this big thing, and I, and I get it, like we need, Members need to know that the course needs to be ta- maintained. There's no doubt about that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, be telling our members we're not doing But you should know if you're going to do something to your golf course. You should know that you absolutely need to be doing it. And that's, that's what all of this is about for, for me, is knowing, yes, I need to be applying this amount of sand. Um, yes, I need to be doing uh, this amount of rolling, this amount of mowing. Um, yes, I need to be applying this amount of potassium or not applying this amount of potassium. Somebody on Twitter just retweeted, uh, I think Micah, actually Micah did it, and then there was some commentary on it, a picture of two of our guys, um, let's say uh, eight years ago or so, applying uh, granular potassium after a rain event. And I sort of chuckled with him, and we we went back and forth a little bit um, about, my response to his question what are you replacing and i said uh, you know something potassium that's washed away with the rain and you know i just didn't know i had some consultant that i worked with had told me that that was a thing to do and you know i wasn't knowledgeable enough in that area to realize that maybe we don't or we shouldn't and i hadn't learned enough about it and um, so we were doing it and you know it was it was a wasteful process yes a few bags of potassium fertilizer don't cost that much but you know it was two guys to apply it and we had to figure out the timing and then you put this granular on the surface that could affect play for a day or two and um you know it just we just didn't need to be doing it and uh, we're not and um you know soil nutrient analysis tells us that we're not having any sort of issues because of it um so uh, hopefully Carl that that speaks to that um that idea but um yeah and again we're not doing nothing we'll talk uh, we can you know we still are applying top dressing if if someone were to walk on our greens right now um they would they would think they'd say oh yeah this is this is not nothing as far as sand i mean they are quite uh quite heavy right now but that's half the sand that we're going to apply for the course of the 12-month cycle so um there's another another question from tj that i think gets to this point a little bit too micah Yeah,
0: let's let's answer all the questions right now. This is awesome. This. uh, This is exactly what I wanted the office hours to be is uh, something where we can talk about a technical subject a little bit. um, But uh, also to have these kind of excellent questions. So I'll show TJ's question. Um, He's asking about layering, um, which is an excellent question
1: yep I, I I'm glad he asked that because um, you know my my old way of thinking before we did this would have um, been would have found that to be concerning too and that would have been the reason I'd say okay I want to put these out on a regular basis um, to reduce layering you know visibly I don't see any issues with layering I, I haven't I haven't seen that with this you know I guess maybe if I'm really being critical I could look at it and be like okay here's the Here's the pre, excuse me. Here's the pre-winter sand. Um, you know, here's the May sand. Maybe, maybe, but you know, again, let's go back to the data. we I'm I'm working to control to grow the least amount of grass possible. So that gets into clipping volume and and you know rates of PGRs and and that sort of thing. Um, amount of nitrogen and and paying attention to to uh, growth potential and not applying, you know applying nitrogen based on growth potential and that is my belief that that controls the growth to a point that we don't um have we're not worrying about a layer so I mean that's a simple way of saying it but again you know it's combining data with visual observations and and saying I I don't think there's a layering problem here and and Micah um can you you want know, comment on on layering a little bit or some of your thoughts on layering and if that how you feel about it because we have had that discussion just a bit
0: um, <clears throat> I have seen more um, layering issues where the turf is great than I've seen bad turf that's caused by layering issues so it's obviously layers are something that People should rightly be concerned about, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be an issue. And anybody, um, I'm not going to bring up your tweet right now where you shared the pictures of those cores when you mm. when you collected the samples on October 11th, I think. But those were beautiful, and uh, you know, there's roots, there's uh, consistent coloring through there. There's you know, it it looks nice, uh, and yep. and it doesn't look like layering. So just. I would encourage people just to monitor it, but yep. don't be afraid of imaginary things that may not have caused a
1: problem yet. Your, I, Mike, do you want me to just? I mean,
0: yeah, can you I
1: could share? You, yep, I I'm going right to
0: answer. Here. You bring you bring that up on your screen. I'm going to okay. answer Chris's, uh, sorry, uh, Eric's question from a long time ago. Uh, Eric asked value in spring and fall testing for courses that are open year round and when when they're doing cultural practices year round i you know even in a tropical environment i think only the really high-end courses would need to uh, would get a value in in measuring twice a year i i think doing this once a year uh this type of testing is is sufficient because otherwise i think you're you might start chasing numbers and and Um, I want to give some time for things to stabilize for the sand that you've applied to have whatever effect it has for the organic matter accumulation rate to um, happen, uh, for for organic matter to develop, for organic matter to mineralize. That's what I'm looking for. Um, So I like doing this once a year. If people want to do it more often, that's fine, but I don't know that it's absolutely necessary, um, especially if your surfaces are performing well, because then you just, you can calculate, once you start doing this as a time series, you can calculate what you need to do for the next year, whether you have a year-round growing season and you're doing maintenance year-round, or whether you have a, um, uh, uh, a shorter season. Um, so... Uh, my answer is I don't really see a huge value in it, but for high-end courses that really want to know what what the results of your work in the last three or four months have been, then you can check that um, if if you want to. I think as people do this more, uh, they will come to agree with me that doing it annually is, is sufficient. All right, Chris, did you... Uh, I have it ready to go. Oh, sweet. That's, that's beautiful. Um, how do I, oh, look at that. Very minimal layering, I would say.
1: Yep. Yep. So, so just to answer TJ's question, you know, that, that's a plug that last saw sand and that was about the beginning, let's say October 10th, I took this. And then, um, you know, the last sand prior to that was August, um, third and now it has a lot more sand on it but you know nowhere in there could you know maybe if someone's being super critical they could say well that might be you know but i just i just don't think you see i don't think there's a layering it's certainly nothing that's concerning you know another thing that that i i think i've come to uh maybe think and this is totally anecdotal but something i think um that happens is if you are constantly building sand up on the surface, I I think that the, you know, I see a lot of over oh, top dressing to improve the firmness of the greens. And I think that that probably is true to some extent, but I also think that the, in order to really do that, that sand needs to um, needs to have some amount of organic matter or plant material growing in and amongst it. So if you just have a layer of sand sitting up here on the top that that is, you know, being constantly built throughout the season. I wonder if that surface isn't going to be a little bit softer than if you put down a bunch of sand and then the plants all grow up and through it and the roots and the everything, all that plant material, um, all that plant material become part of, there's this matrix of organic material and sand. And I think my, my feeling is that's that's firmer than if it's just, you know, fresh sand always being on top of the, of the surface. Again, that's completely anecdotal, but, but that's, um, something I've sort of noticed as, as we've gone through these two years of no real in-season top dressing is I think the greens are firmer because of that.
0: Very good, Chris. Thank you. Um, let's see, we still have a couple more questions. I, uh, Youtuber forty nine asks about the uh, whether the USGA profile will be replaced by something better or if it's still a good construction method. I'm going to also recommend Doug Soldat's um, uh, podcast with the Talking Greenkeeper with uh, yeah. Joe Gilotti. Uh and they they talked about that. They talked about the new greens at Marion, uh, some innovative construction methods. Um, the USGA Method; those recommendations are a standard. Um, it doesn't mean it's the best way, but uh, everybody knows that it can work.
1: I mean, my my experience has been in now nine years of managing these USGA greens that were pretty new when I got here, and and um, I think still perform at the at a extremely high level. Um, I think if if you are on top of everything you need to be on top of, they're they're quite good, um, you know. But but there's and there's been lots of talk. Dan Danelli has talked about this, the idea that once you start top dressing uh, a USGA green, um, you're sort of leaving the the root zone behind. I think we can see that a little bit, Micah, in the testing, the 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 various you know zero to two, two to four, and and four to six that four to six is just sort of, you know, it's it's everything's moving down. You know, what next year when we test part of what was zero to two this year will be two to four next year. So there's obviously going to be this movement down. Um, but I think if you're staying on top of everything you need to do, a USGA green is quite quite good yeah. and performs the way a person would want it. But it does seem to me that I keep looking at the the picture of the core here. That's why my head is going to that direction. But um, <laughs> it it seems to me that if a person would um, not a per, but if a system, the USGA system, and it is a system, is not being maintained properly or isn't having the right kind of things done to it. Let's say a course, let's just let's just say um, a course builds USGA greens and then they have some sort of um, issue with you know they, they don't have the funds then to do the, the things that need to be done to maintain them properly, whatever those things might be. Um, I think they will get to be pretty bad quite quickly. You know, an organic matter would, would build up quite quickly on the top. If, if a situation with a lot of, you know, over fertilizing, let's say, uh, over watering, And if you get a, a really heavy layer of organic matter on the top of a USG green, that system is not going to perform very well. Um, so I think it can be quite good, but can get um, can get into trouble quickly too if it's not if it's not um, managed properly. So um, you know, it's it's whether it's the best system or not. Um, I don't I don't have that answer, but uh, you know, it's it's here, here's something I've always thought is interesting. If you were to let a course go fallow for a year I think Micah you've maybe written about this or shown pictures of courses you go find a course that isn't doesn't exist anymore and has gone away um if it all the native soil areas are are probably after a year or more are going to be generally okay that turf is going to be alive you could maybe let's say one year of not maintaining that course go back and start to mow the fairways and um you know get a reasonably good product after you know with some work but the greens, like a USGA green, uh, especially if it's a USGA green, is probably they're probably going to be dead because I, th- there's just no sustainability there. Like That needs the hand of a turf manager constantly, all the time, to survive and to be the type of surface that they need to be. So in that regard, um, I don't think they're very self-sustaining, but that doesn't mean they don't produce great turf. Um, so that, that's, uh, I guess, my way of sitting on the fence on it a little bit, maybe.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, that's really the only way to be about that because there are a lot of different ways to build greens. And, uh, you're right. I, again, there's always, uh, stuff on my website. I'll, I'll recommend that again. I, I think if you search my website, you can probably find some pictures of some abandoned golf courses where the putting green is dead. Um, look for ecology if you search for turfgrass ecology um, i'm not sure if those are on my new on my current site but they might be there's i think there's over 500 maybe close to i think there's more than 500 posts that are searchable on the new site now are uh, not new it was new a year ago current um awesome we still have more questions this is unbelievable uh Eric's asking again about in the Pacific Northwest annual bluegrass that can grow November to March in the off season. Um, if it's something that that someone is interested in and really wants to know the number and how it changes season by season, um, I think that could be um, then you can certainly test and measure it. I just I always want to simplify. i People might think that I like to make things complicated by all this data, but I'm really um, trying to make things as simple as possible, which maybe I don't always convey that. But um, for me, sampling once a year, now we combine what happens in the, in the winter when it's growing, we combine what happened during the summer when it's growing, and we just look at it every October, for example. Um, for me, that answers all the questions. Um, I don't feel like I need to know what it is in June and and again what it is in, in October. But I think, yeah, I mean, Eric's from a, a tournament venue, major championship venue. I think um, for that kind of facility, maybe you do spend a few hundred dollars and do the testing twice a year, and then you really know. But I'm often thinking more for the average facility. I don't know that it's necessary to measure twice a year. Um, and John, John's asked about native soils, fairways and teas. Um, that is a, a, a great question whether the OM246 testing is applicable to these. I know, Chris, you did uh, fairways and approaches this year. Yep. Um, yep. Yes, it, it's applicable. I just I think the most value is on um, is on putting greens because those are the most intensively maintained surfaces. Uh, but if you're concerned about ball bounce and if you're doing things to manage organic matter on uh, I mean, I, I think tees and approaches, fairways, yeah, it just depends. If if you want good surfaces that people are going to uh, stand on when they're teeing off and, and especially if it's uh, it's like a tournament type of venue then it would make sense to me to to measure this, I
1: think, and we we talked about that. In fact, in our report this year, you basically said, "I'm not going to give any recommendations. I'm not even going to do any charts because it's one year of information. I don't have enough. I don't have enough uh, background data on this to to give you any kind of recommendation. But here's the data. Now next year we'll have two years, and we can start to put it into a time series. So it's uh, and yeah. that's
0: that's something I think you told me uh well you've questioned sometimes whether you can uh just pull up the cores on fairways right and then spread the sand over the top and and you want to uh, that's a big operation and that's a lot of sand if you're putting fresh sand or if you're just recycling the sand and and uh it it does make sense in that case i think to to measure this a little bit, and that's and-
1: part of the reason I want to do it. We're sort of making this transition where I think that our our routine's gonna. We've top dressed fairways out here for many many years. There's enough sand built up in the profile of the fairways to pull a plug that is basically completely uh, sandy root zone. And then, um, so I want to know. Okay, we're at the beginning of that now. Um, if we do that for a couple of years, how is that impacting uh, the the organic matter in the fairways? So. That's that's kind of why we started doing it. So.
0: Awesome. How's your time, Chris? I would
1: say it's in, it's interesting. Anytime I've collected any of this data and I've started doing it and I've gotten over that hurdle of of starting. Every time I've done it, I always have thought to myself, I wish I had this from previous years. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's it always makes me realize that that I can't believe I wasn't doing this before. So
0: yeah. Uh, how's your time? Do you, do you want to keep going and shoot through the you rest know, of the there's, report? there's,
1: You know, I can go for as long as people would want to listen. Um, <laughs> I, it, this is, this is a great subject and we're at a nice time of year here in Minnesota where, um, my time is, um, I don't want to say limitless, but I, I, <laughs> I don't, I'm not under any sort of strain time strain.
0: Cool. Good. Well, let me flip back to the, um, let me flip back it, to the chart then. It uh, might
1: be good, Mike, if we just talked a little bit about how we've come up with the prescribed sand, and that might be where you're going, the amount of sand for a year.
0: That would be very good. Let's let's look at the report to show what we're trying to achieve, and then I'll I'll show how I calculate that. Um so I think I can share that screen. There we go. Um, so we've got those numbers. That compares to species. And then so basically everything's fine. And the idea is kind of like we want to keep things the kind of where they are. And then the next chart I show is um, like a scatter plot that identifies the different greens. So now the fifth green is. I think it's the worst one out there uh, in terms of the way the grass, the, the grass doesn't seem very vigorous. Uh, it's, and I've only it's been there. Most,
1: it's our most difficult green to manage, that's, that's, and uh, it, that's how I would describe it.
0: And it's got the lowest organic matter at the surface. Yeah. And then yeah. nine green is in full sun. And it's got the most organic matter. So- nine
1: green is perfect. So if I would if I would label those two greens, I would say that when I go out to look at greens in you know, uh, let's say the weather is you know you're in the middle of the summer and the the heat index is hundred and five, and I want to go look at a green to see if there's anything that's you know becoming an issue. Number five is where I would go. It's that is our our low end indicator green, and number nine would be a green that I would never hardly think about in that regard.
0: Excellent. And this is very typical where, uh, when people do this type of testing, the healthiest greens, the best performing greens tend to have more organic matter, which is, and the worst greens tend to have the least cause they just don't grow as much. And, uh, I, I, or they don't grow, they don't produce as much organic material underground. And, uh, I think that can be a caution against trying to go too low. Um, so here we've got the numbers. And then now I'm not showing the background by um, by only bent grass. I'm showing everything. So for this test on putting greens, the organic matter goes up sometimes as high as about 20%. Um, and then also this shows why we don't do so much testing down at the deeper depth. You see there's just very little variability. Just go down to two to four centimeter depth. That's zero point eight to one point six inches. You're, we're basically uh, from from three quarters of an inch down to one and a half inches below the surface. it's It's nothing. Um, i've I've got a, a handy sampler here as a as a prop, and uh, these these lines on here are two centimeters apart. So if, if this would be the zero to two centimeter depth um, that that next depth, it's 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 nothing. it's It's a tiny, tiny bit below the surface. So um, a, as we go down to those depths, um, th- there's very little variability. and you you go down to the four to six centimeter depth they're they're quite close. So we're not worried about that so much, but we do want to make sure that at the surface, it's uh, it's staying relatively consistent. So then um, let me bring up a different screen, and I'll show how we calculate this. So th- it turns that there's a surprising Amount of uh, complexity. There's a surprising amount of complexity in this in terms of math. So I'm going to go to the Shiny apps. And I've got a calculator for this, the OM246 calculator. So what this does is calculates the organic matter accumulation rate. I think not everybody knows about this uh, or thinks about this completely. Do they, Chris? I mean, when, when you first start doing this, you're probably thinking about what the organic m- matter is, what the total organic, what the number's gonna be when you do the test. Okay. But, yep. um, and then everybody wants to know how much sand should I apply? Well, if, I can tell you if you apply this much sand last week, what your organic matter will be right now. But after the grass grows in April, May, June, and July, You have some organic matter accumulation, and that uh, is is difficult to know. But we can figure it out by doing this organic matter testing over time, and that's what this calculator does. So I'll, I'll. Oops, it's showing the wrong. Hmm, I'm gonna. I'm going to try again to share my screen. It's not sharing the one I thought I was. Shiny apps. It must have opened in a different uh, window. Oh, I. wait a second. Sorry.
1: I'm this, is just the beauty t- of, this is the beauty of live recording.
0: Yeah. Then this is totally my first time doing this too. But this should be the app. I can't believe the internet has worked all through this time. All right. So quite, quite here, good, yeah. here's a tiny app that that has the calculator. So I'll jump to the OM accumulation rate part. So it's just showing some default stuff, but. Let's let's change some things. So I'm going to change the... We're just concerned about the top two centimeters. So I'm going to change that to two. You were 4.9, weren't you, Chris?
1: Yep. Yep.
0: So you were 4.9 last year and you were 4.9 this year. So this is now um, going to calculate the organic matter accumulation rate, which is really important because we need to know how rapidly it's accumulating before we can figure out how much sand to apply Mm -hmm. then the date range was one year i'm not going to change it it was october to october this is still 12 months and you what did you apply 5.2 or something i was
1: just above five like 5.3 or something like that but
0: this is where it gets tricky because a lot of that went in with the dryject and so i guess that right at the surface the amount that stayed at the surface might be three I think that's Um, what,
1: yep, that's what I recall you saying.
0: So I I think that's what I did. So I'll change that to three. And now it says that your organic matter accumulation rate was 9.1 grams per kilogram of soil per year, which is interesting to know, but, um, and there's a surprising amount of math behind it. Um, But now we just calculated that. You can't do anything with that except when we plug that math in also to the, um, the next tab here, the sand requirement. So now it's, it's, it's remembering that we're working with the 2-centimeter soil layer. You can change this if you want to, but it's remembering that we were at 2. We're currently at 4.9. We'd like to stay at about 4.9, and um, it, it brings in what our... Um, accumulation rate was which is 9.1 grams per kilogram and want to be a year from now we'd like to be the same so it's saying that you need to put 2.6 millimeters of sand into the top two centimeters over the next year given the accumulation given that the accumulation rate we've calculated from last year um, is the same accumulation rate that you would have next year that, mm-hmm. That's how that works. So uh, I probably put something similar to that in the report. But anybody can can do this um, with the calculator that you can also find on the Asian Turfgrass website.
1: Um, there's some some great. I don't know if you saw them, Michael, as you were doing that. But Jason and Eric and um, Andrew had some great commentary. Uh, Andrew's it's probably Ken- staying up quite late good for this, Cool. Lord.
0: That's past Uh, your bedtime, Andrew.
1: Yeah. Wow. Had some Uh, some commentary about uh, aerating, you know, in that. And and if we're going to poke holes and put sand in there, does it make sense to just do it, you know, keep it in the two centimeter depth? To me, it seems like it does. Because as I I look at what you just came up with there, Micah, if we're going to apply five... Five millimeters of sand because we had talked about five millimeters being an amount, but then I think you also split that into three millimeters in the top two centimeters and two millimeters would would just assuming he's going to go below that from some sort of aeration holes. Um, okay, well, let's let's just as maybe like a, a thought exercise if if because I just applied leading into winter two point five millimeters of sand to the surface. Um, in two lifts, let's say two, two applications, one application, each of 1.25 millimeters. So in theory, in theory, if that's all we did for the year between, between now and the next time that we, um, do our testing in October, in theory, that, that should keep us level without having to worry about any sand going into the profile. Uh, it would be interesting to see if that's the case. Now, that doesn't account for the idea that at some point we might want to make make some holes and and put some sand into there in there. I'm not saying we we, you know, I don't know if we do need to do that. Um, at some point, I'd like to find out. but you know, I know yeah. that's Andrews stayed away from
0: it's it's interesting. I mean, like, uh, some of these things are pretty crude calculations um but we can certainly test it and see how it how it works. It's like now now I start thinking about layering and stuff like that that I just said is is not a problem, right. but then it's like yeah, if if you talk to us once a year, it's and uh as you do this and and see how the surfaces perform and get the data to confirm that things are not going completely haywire, you can start getting ideas of things that you never thought were possible. Yeah. Uh, suddenly you start to wonder whether it might be possible. Like yeah. Andrew this year uh, was only able to get one top dressing down and one top dressing in the year and the greens performed great. So mm-hmm. um, those kind of things that I never would have thought that was possible, I would have recommended to apply six or eight times that much sand. Um, and now all of a sudden I start to think, yeah, maybe you can do it with once a year. Maybe you can do it with very little
1: well and so you know if I think about that bobble test chart let's just say let's say in theory that we decided okay the 2.5 millimeters of sand that we just put down heading into winter is is we're going to go with that we're going to roll with that amount because we think that that will keep our om in the top two centimeters where it needs to be um over the course of the year and then just roll with that as our as our, our practices for the year. Maybe we needle tine if we feel like we need to open up a hole in the surface. So maybe there's something like that that happens. But there's no big aerification event. And then I look at that bobble test and I go, okay, we come out of winter and we quickly get to eight and then we quickly get to nine and then we just stay at nine until the end of the year, in theory. In theory. Um, who is going to complain about that? I'm not. I hate aerifying. I hate it. You know, I don't get excited about that process at all. Um, but again, it, the testing would say, would tell you, are you, is there undue harm being done? Because I know that that would be the concern. You know, other colleagues of mine would think about something like that and hear that and just think, oh, they just shudder thinking, I can't not do an verification. I think there's also some concern that if you don't do it this year, then is that going to become the expectation in years, in, in, in coming years, and then you lose that opportunity to do it? Um, you know, that needs to be considered.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that one. I, that's, that's not my favorite argument because I'm just like, man, who's going to complain about skipping something when you might have to do it in the future. But if we can, if we make the greens better this year by not airifying, why, why is that a bad thing? Right. But yeah, that's an argument I've heard too. So I want to show one more thing on the chart, and then maybe we can have an open discussion, um, and then then wind this up. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out this screen share thing again. That was not right. <laughs> uh, this one's this one's gonna be right though. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share the report and show something. Else that has slightly less complicated math, but that is, is brilliant, um, I think. So, a lot of people are familiar with the research that Dr. Caro did in, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s. So, some USGA funded research looking at organic matter in the surface layer of bent grass greens. He also looked A little bit at uh, Ultra Dwarf Bermuda grass grains. And, but see, he did that on, uh, not at a zero to two centimeter depth, not at a zero to one inch depth. He did it at a zero to two inch depth. And so now we're talking about something that's from zero down to 2.4, no, zero to 5.4 centimeters below the surface. And, is that right? Something like that. It's getting very late for me too. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think something something like that. Uh, so anyway, we can make that calculation because we're measuring at zero to two, we're measuring at two to four, we're measuring at four to six. So we've gone all the way down below um, zero to two inches. So we we've got that entire layer. We can we can estimate what the a uh, little difference will be there's a slight overlap when we go from the two to four into four to six. So we use some math to, to calculate that and we can estimate, well, I mean, basically we've measured it and then we just do a calculation to figure out what the zero to two inch uh, is. And so Dr. Carroll said, if you're over 4%, that is an indication that you might have a problem, especially on bent grass greens in the American Southeast in the summer and grass greens would uh they're difficult to manage in that type of climate and they can fail pretty bad when it gets hot that when there's not enough oxygen in the root zone when there's too much um too much water in the root zone not enough pore space you get big problems so he he put the number four percent out there as a upper limit that might be safe and so i show that last because I think people would be interested in this also. So I make that calculation. I just started doing this on the reports this year. And uh, you can see for for Hazeltine, with all... So now now we're looking at the effects of your dry jacks, the effects of when you're putting the solid and and, um, and filling those holes with sand. We're looking at what's happening at the surface. We're looking at the entire effect through uh, this depth. And this is going from 2.5, 2.5, 2.9, 2.9. So it's staying flat all through that depth. I'm sorry. I, this, this particular chart is showing from 0 to 6 centimeter depth. I, I make the calculation from 0 to uh, 2 inches in the footnote. And so where you're at uh, in October of 2011, you were at three point three percent in in the if that's expressed on a two inch basis, mm-hmm. but um, the chart I'm showing everything down to six centimeters. So I think this is kind of cool because now you're looking at at what's happening with the sand that you're putting down below the surface too, and to see that just staying flat with basically you're only disrupting the greens a few times a year. It's it's a nice reassurance I think that yeah. that what you're doing. Is not causing organic matter to accumulate too much.
1: Yeah, I, I will say too, and we've seen if if people are recalling the charts from before, you can see from the first two times we tested to the to the third time we tested, there's a jump there. And I will say that after um, in 2017 and 2018, I, I I I kept the greens very lean, and that this was sort of before that was when I started clip volume. And I would say that, um, this could be another two hour discussion, but we we've, we've talked a little bit of Micah, you and I before about how, what are measurements a target or are they to inform decisions? And I think when I started doing that clipping volume, I was, I was focusing a little bit more on it being a target. And so in 2017 and 2018, the first two years I was doing that, I was sort of focused on like keeping that clipping volume number low and really low. And, um, And I think in that regard, I think we had some um, surfaces that weren't ideal because they were too lean and there wasn't, we weren't growing enough grass for, uh, you know, uh, in simplistic terms. And so those organic matter numbers are a little bit lower at the beginning of that. And then they come up a little bit as we just grew a little bit more grass. But that's one thing I'm really happy about this, comparing this year's results to last year's results is growing more grass applying the sand that we did on a, a sort of prescribed, uh, in a prescribed manner and getting that number to stay where we want it to stay, uh, is something that's really encouraging.
0: That's, that's very good. I, I think this is an exciting time in turf grass management because, uh, we keep finding ways to produce great surfaces with, uh less work. I think it's pretty cool. I I was emailing back and forth with Bjarni today. Um, he also collected samples, I think, on October 11th, so I've sent him a OM246 report um, some weeks ago, and he and I have, have both been a little bit busy, so we didn't really chat about it until today, and uh, I asked him how much sand he put. He put 3.2 millimeters of sand, mm-hmm. and his uh, clipping volume this year was about uh, 3... Th- three liters per square meter or 3,000 okay. um, cubic centimeters per um, 3,000 cubic centimeters per, per square meter, or what would that be? I, I stopped thinking about it in terms of 100 square meters, but maybe. Um,
1: um, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. Let me, I'm looking at my charts to see if I can get that number from out of my data somewhere.
0: But it turns out to be something that, that matches exactly with the research that was done at Rutgers. When they did all that research about anthracnose, um, they did not measure clipping volume, but they reported what their nitrogen rates were, and they reported exactly how much sand was applied. And, and we know what the climate is like at, at those research plots. We know what the temperatures are like. So based on that, I can predict approximately how much clipping volume they probably got from the amount of nitrogen that they applied, because you'd you'd expect a certain maximum growth rate. The grass can't grow any more than that. So we expect a, a maximum growth rate for the amount of nitrogen applied. We know exactly how much sand was applied, and we know what the temperatures were. So based on that, I guessed that for every one milliliter cubic centimeter of clippings, that you harvest per square meter, you it it might make sense to apply one cubic centimeter of sand, and it turns out that's basically exactly what Bjarni's done, and his uh his organic matter there in Iceland is right in the range that STRI recommends that the RNA recommend that they're they're shooting for for their open championship venues, um, right in between four percent and six percent in the top two centimeters. That's I don't generally recommend specific ranges for anyone, uh, or for everyone. I don't recommend for everyone to be like that, because I think it should be done on a course by course basis. Um, But certainly, it's quite comforting to know that he's applying a relatively minimal amount of sand, that it matches the approximate growth rate he's getting. And he also happens to have a, OM two value that's right, uh, like at an open championship type of level. All right, Chris, we lost your camera. Are you? Uh, maybe he's. Maybe he's got a phone call. Okay, I'm going to check the chat real quick. Uh, my, this is. This is great to have so many people contributing the information. I, I agree with everyone about uh, just just punching holes really, really shallow and just filling those with sand. It, based on these numbers, we just don't see so much happening down at the 2 to 4 centimeter depth or the uh, 4 to 6 centimeter depth. So it, it seems like we could do quite well with uh, just getting a lot of sand right into the surface. And okay. All right. Well, everyone, I, uh, I don't see Chris. i maybe he had to take a phone call. I'll I'll stay on here a a couple more minutes in case anybody has any more questions. Okay. Chris sent me a message. He he had to leave the office. He said he's going to be right back. There he is. Hey.
1: I'm back. So, you know, I stayed on. I
0: answered it. I made a few comments.
1: One of the disadvantages of me doing this in the morning is that I've had about 16 ounces of (laughs) bulletproof coffee and, um, you know, which doesn't allow me to go for a two-hour period without using the restroom. So,
0: Okay, well, good, good. Welcome back. Micah,
1: back. Like you've had my coffee, right? We had some in, in 2019.
0: I was very glad to have it. Thank you. Yep. It's delicious. Do you still do the coconut or are you doing butter? What are you putting in there? Um,
1: so butter, um, about two tablespoons. This is about 16 ounces. About two tablespoons of butter, two tablespoons of, of MCT oil. And then a scoop of of collagen powder and then i blend it with a, a immersion blender and it's um as you can attest it's 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 quite good and then that'll be kind of my sustenance for most of the morning and early afternoon so that's that's excellent i think phil mickelson has become he's that's kind of his mixture as well if i'm not mistaken so
0: yeah coffee is coffee is delicious i eh? drink a lot of it. We were just up in northern Thailand, uh, where uh, at the higher elevations around Chiang Rai, kind of the Golden Triangle area where there used to be a lot of opium poppy production. And now there's tea and uh, Arabica coffee and various other types of agriculture there. But uh, just some splendid uh, coffees, really flavorful Arabica that you can get and just coffee shop after coffee shop in these towns. So yeah. that was, awesome. that was enjoyable.
1: Yeah. I Did you talk uh, some of these discussion that Jason and, and Steve and those I, were, and Eric were having about? Yeah,
0: I I agree yeah. that uh, it makes sense to me to just punch a lot of holes at the very shallow depth and fill yeah. them with sand because yeah. there's just not much happening down below. Um, so if you don't have a compaction problem, if you don't have other reasons why you need to decompact or or make holes down deeper, if we just consider this only from a uh, uh, organic matter perspective, then it doesn't make sense to do anything below two centimeters.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. That's that's kind of what we're thinking about. Um, you know, now I'm really intrigued though. I'm, I'm wondering if our, our 2.5 millimeters just on the surface is, is enough, but we'll see. We'll see.
0: Yeah. I think if, if you keep the growth rate under control, yeah. um, it, it probably is, is pretty close. I think it's like chasing your tail to keep trying. Like I, I used to recommend people put 12 to 15 millimeters of sand, right? That's uh, 40 to 50 cubic feet. Maybe not in your climate, but in in warmer climates, I'd recommend 12 to 15 millimeters, which is 40 to 50 cubic feet per thousand square feet per year. And now we're talking about numbers. Last year, you put five something. I said, Bjarni put uh, three point two. Um, Andrew put one, I think, this year. So now, now we're talking uh, single digits and pretty much everybody's less than five. So these numbers are such a departure from the, the way that I used to recommend. Um, it, it's, it's striking. And I, I never would have thought this is possible, but now people do this, get good results, and then you start thinking, uh, maybe by putting such a small amount of sand, we uh, we don't have to grow the grass so fast. Mm-hmm. So then we don't need such an organic matter accumulation rate. Because right. so I think sometimes people are doing so much work that they they're maintaining the grass at a at a growth rate which produces an organic matter accumulation rate.
1: Yep. But they're
0: they're they're maintaining it at a growth rate that seems normal. Right. But that normal is based on their punching holes and spreading sand that the grass needs to recover from yep. or, or verticutting, right? Some, yep. some people like to rip the grass up and verticut a lot. Yep. Um, and that requires the grass to grow. But if, if you're not doing those things, you're able to grow the grass at a slower rate. It may be that that allows uh, for a lower organic matter accumulation rate. So this all just kind of, uh works maybe
1: it's a little bit uh yeah it's it's like a self-fulfilling thing almost in that you do all this work and then it requires is are you doing all this work because you're growing so much grass or you're growing so much grass because you're doing all this work and and my experience has come to to be that we're growing all that grass because we're doing all that work and the work can be reduced allowing the grass growth to be reduced as well, keeping the quality from, and the quality doesn't drop. I think, you know, again, we're, we, we've talked about this again, but I think that this is the crux of the matter. And Carl asked this question, people are fearful of stopping doing the work because they think that that means that their surface quality will deteriorate. But I don't think they realize that if they stop doing all the work, all of the other things that they'll also be able to stop doing um, all of the other things, but uh, maybe not, but the other things that they will stop being able to do, the amount of, of fertilizer they'll be able to um, reduce, uh, fertilizer nitrogen inputs they'll be able to reduce and, and the, the improvement in quality that comes from that. Um, you know, I think, again, you know, there's multiple ways to get to the, a good surface quality uh absolutely you know i'm not saying this is the best way to do it but what i know from listening to our golfers is that they don't they just want to play golf when we open the golf course on april 15th they want to just play un, without being disrupted from april 15th until november whatever fifth fourth october 31st they just want to play undisrupted we have Roughly 170 days of golf that will be open. And of those 170 days, let's say 30 of them you toss out because the weather's crummy and people wouldn't play or it's too cold or it's it's a thunderstorm that results in a rain out on a particular day. So now we're down to about 140 days. Now, how many of those days can can we perfect the the quality of the surface for our golfers? That's that's what I'm looking at. Um, can we do 140? Maybe not, but I think we can get pretty close to that. Um, and that, that's kind of, that's the goal of all this for me.
0: Yeah. I, I saw K a keeper, um, uh, mentioned that, uh, if you, if you don't have maintenance Mondays and I think in Japan golf courses are usually open all, all week. So there's no maintenance Monday. And then you have a couple tournaments. He happens to have a warm season grass on the greens with one pro tournament in june another one in august so it's like you don't have mondays to do the work you and and you can't really do the work because during the growing season you have tournaments and mm. it kind of fixes itself so that's mm. that's a joke but uh it, it's funny that uh it did kind of fix itself there and we we found out that it, it works there um so that's pretty cool well,
1: I might say that the you know a, a pandemic and just sort of wanting to not uh, I don't know it it kind of that whole last year just kind of froze me and I just like it was weird but I didn't want to do anything. It's not that I didn't do anything, but it just like my my mind was was so focused on the fact that it reduce risk in every possible way. And you know I look back on it now and I think how could how could like the idea of top dressing greens reduce Risk um, of COVID, it couldn't. It couldn't. But you know, at the time, at that time, you know, nobody knew exactly what the real risks of it, almost anything we were doing were. And again, it's not that top dressing greens was particularly risky, but there was just we were just trying to do everything so simple. We had fewer staff. We had people riding around on on you know a cart by themselves, trying to stay as far away from other people as they could. And it just sort of led to this mentality of you know doing less and one of the things we did last was top dress greens. And by accident, we almost found out, wow, look at what the quality of these surfaces were when there wasn't sand right there that the the rollers and mowers were just smashing the grass, the leaf blades into all, all season long. So.
0: I think, um, something that I have noticed, I've I wrote an article about this for my column in golf course management magazine. Um, was uh, what I've learned from tournaments. And something that we can learn from tournaments is they don't do deep and infrequent irrigation during the week of a tournament. They mm-hmm. don't spread granular fertilizer during the week of a tournament. They try to minimize clip volume during the week of a tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely do light and frequent irrigation if necessary during the week of a tournament. They don't. Did I say they don't aerify? They don't. They have no need to vent the greens. Right. The grass doesn't need spa day during the week of a tournament, and they don't spread sand unless it's an emergency during the week of a tournament. Um, so there's a lot of things that um, that I've learned from watching how tournament play is, and saying wait, if we're trying to produce tournament conditions all the time, or like you're saying, trying to hit. This really high standard of of uh, playing surface for the season of the year when the golfers can play. You said one hundred and forty days or something is mm-hmm. maybe the target. Yep. Uh, well, then then you want to be doing things like not top dressing, not venting, uh, yep. all the things that you do during a tournament, minimizing clipping volume. Uh, you know, so so th- to do that, you don't put so much fertilizer and so on. So it's yeah. uh, it's it's an interesting way to think because I used to swear by deep and infrequent irrigation mm-hmm. uh, to yep, the point same. that I to the point that I caused problems with turf. This is back when I was a golf course superintendent. Andrew knows or Kaya Keeper, as he styles himself here on the internet, to be somewhat anonymous. But I think I just dropped his <laughs> name. Sorry about that, <laughs> Kaya Keeper. Um, but you know we kept it so dry when he he was working with me at habu country club that was usga greens uh Penn Cross creeping bent grass we didn't really use wetting agent we'd let it get so dry then we couldn't re-wet it and it was all because i was trying to do deep yep. and infrequent and yep. we would have had i mean and also jason haynes i think discovered that the grass is just better when you irrigate it and maintain the
1: i i have found the same thing yeah. i had the same idea about watering fairways when i got here when i came from northland to here and i've totally changed 180 degrees you know when the fairways need are, are dry and need water now i will water the areas that are dry and need water every night that's not the entire fairway program but it's the areas that need it and they get that water every night as opposed to um, you know, start, you know, keeping them and it's small amounts, like six to eight minutes of runtime a night. So, but our surfaces are are better quality visually, um, just a better overall turf, but just as if not firmer than um, they were when I was trying to do this uh, deep and infrequent. And I've seen you, you talked, I remember you talked about that here in, in Minneapolis, Micah, about that. And you had a chart that showed actually how much less, uh, the moisture content can be when you do, um, you know, frequent light, frequent irrigation over time, as opposed to you know a lot and then let it sit. But yeah,
0: yeah. Doug Doug Soldat taught me that. Um, he was visiting Thailand in two thousand nine for the for the conference, and uh, it was it was interesting that he told me just like offhand, he's like, you know, you can use less water if you irrigate light and frequent. And I was like, no, 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 that can't be right. I know. it. I mean, it was all the way until 2009, I kept thinking that you'd use less water, and everything would be better, ideally, if you do deep and infrequent. And he just kind of offhandedly mentioned this. And then I worked through the calculations. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, if, if you apply a little bit of water every day, you theoretically can keep uh, you you can apply less water and keep the soil drier and mm-hmm. do it safely mm-hmm. if you average everything out over time.
1: there's a a question from youtuber forty nine about volume of play. and I don't know if he's if he's uh, qu- asking the question of his fellow commenters or if he's asking the question of us, but I you know Hazeltine is a, a course that gets quite a bit of play, close to twenty five thousand rounds over those um, let's say 170, 140 to 170 days that were open. Um, so that's, that's quite a bit of play. And I've noticed that with sand not being constantly present on the surface of greens, our resilience to traffic is much better. Um, and that goes for both golfer traffic and roller traffic, especially. Um, I have in my first few years here, we would, um, see that we deteriorated the edges of greens with the rollers um quite a bit and in the last two years without top dressing in season um, or minimal top dressing in season we have not seen that reduction in quality from the rollers they can go out every single day um, and roll to the edges without any trouble and don't diminish that quality at all so that's one type of traffic and then golfer traffic um, is, is also quite substantial here, especially on, on some greens. We, we talked about the fifth green earlier and um, that fifth green has a, 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 a way that it's shape a shape to it and a nature to it that forces a lot of traffic into a very small area. And so we see some um, traffic impact as we go through the season, but it's less. And in fact, prior to these last two years, um, I was oftentimes applying supplemental nitrogen to various areas of putting surfaces um, that got a lot of traffic, whether it be edges from rollers or areas that golfers tended to go. And these last two seasons, the, the two seasons without the in-season top dressing, uh, we've had to hardly do that at all. Um, so uh, again, that's a little bit anecdotal, but I think that um, I think that the traffic resiliency of and of our surfaces has gone way up without that sand always being there and um, being sort of uh, pressed into the, the leaves being pressed into that, that sand.
0: We got another question um, from TJ. This is nice and controversial. <clears throat> he says, Micah, I've seen a couple passing comments from you on Twitter and a bit here now about the need for needle tining for potential gas exchange. Is this a practice losing value in your opinion recently? Um, Yeah, it, it definitely loses value in my opinion because um, there's two recent research articles, one from North Carolina on bent grass. Well, and the other one's not so recent, but I, I blogged about it earlier this year. It's, it was published in the USGA's Turf and Environmental Research Online in like uh, 2011 or something. Uh, I've blogged about both of those, so you can find it on on my website. Um, both of those uh, found that venting bank grass. so that. The, the older one is from Virginia, from I think from the Richmond area, and the other one is from North Carolina. Both of those, very hot, stressful environment for bent grass in the summertime, and uh, both of those venting did nothing. So, uh, So then I'm like, why did I think this was so essential? Why did I think it's something that you should do like at least once a month, better yet, twice a month during the summer? And if you have problems if the grass is under stress why did i think that it would be like something that you do instantly and then do it weekly or something until you nurse the greens back to health and yet i'm now i'm seeing this research that says it it had no measurable effect so i start looking and I, i'd gone to a seminar of mild angle key in uh i think in dallas maybe back in 2001 the gis show in uh, I think that was two thousand one. It is getting late here, and <laughs> my, my I've been up since about five, so my my mind doesn't uh, continue my train of thought always. But in, I think I'd been to a seminar on on grass root zone management or something, I'd, or uh, I'd heard him speak with authority of of the benefit that you get from venting from from needle tining. So. I search all the academic turfgrass databases, the TGIF, the Turfgrass Information File at Michigan State. I search that for venting and mild angle key aeration, mild angle key, and I mean probably I'm totally missing it, and somebody's going to call me out and say, Micah, this is the paper you're looking for. Um, so if you have that, please let me know, but I didn't find it. So basically, he was talking about this, but maybe didn't have a lot of data to show it. So of course, air is important. Um, Too much water is important. Lack of air space is a massive problem, but in a sand-based root zone, I think we often uh, are doing okay. And the venting maybe is just making us feel better but it may not be having an effect. So, well, I I, wonder, I, I become skeptical. I become skeptical.
1: I, I've I've been one who would um, who would would vent needle tying based on you know this idea that I was seeing some sort of surface decline that I I was um, concerned about, and I would react. I was sort of reacting to that with the needle tiny thinking that that was going to help us. And, you know, if it did or, um, didn't, I, I don't know, but I've done it less the last two years because we have not seen the surface decline and I've not then felt like that's a practice that we need to do. Um, and again, that goes because in my opinion, because we've had less sand on the surface during the season, when we're intensely managing the greens, rolling, doing some combination of rolling and mowing every day, um, and uh, and and I just haven't felt the need to do it based on a visual assessment of what the turf looks like, and it hasn't caused us any sort of issues. Uh, there is a, 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 I guess, a statement from Jeff Whitmire. Um I, I don't disagree with that. I would say um, I we had a situation this year. Actually, I was talking about infiltration earlier. Um, we had a situation this year during one of our club ma- major club events in which we had not had rain for a number of weeks, and we were managing the greens really um, at a championship-type level, hand-watering, a little bit of overhead irrigation when necessary, but we had the greens exactly where we would want them to be to performing the way that we wanted. And we got a, uh, not a lot of rain, but a sort of an intense rain shower during play on the last day that kind of came up out of nowhere. And the greens instantly became unplayable, um, because there was, um, you know, sort of a, a, what, just what Jeff describes almost like a lack of infiltration due to the intenseness of the manage, the, the managing and the, the lack of rainfall over the last three weeks. And so the greens quickly became unplayable because of almost puddling or surface water, but then it was almost like once the, the, The green accepted that moisture and the the rainfall slowed down and infiltrated then it continued to rain and it was not a problem Um, so i i wouldn't disagree with what jeff says that there might be instances of of that where you go a long period of time without any natural rainfall and you've been doing a lot of intense maintenance and and uh, needle tining could could help that uh, sort of situation
0: yeah, I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about infiltration because I'm just not yeah, a big fan. And
1: like I, I, like yeah. I
0: I want to see where where the infiltration is such a problem that you you have to cancel tea times. And you know that's what I'm concerned about. And I just uh, I agree with Jeff that that you're gonna get more infiltration if you vent, but like how much infiltration do you need? Do you have to do you have the infiltration blocked so much that tea times get postponed? I, I I don't know. I mean Andrew, Andrew, sorry, Kaya Keeper brought this up with me too. He he was I encouraged him to stop punching so many holes also because the uh, I noticed the ball was snaking a little bit. That's part of something that you measure with the bobble test. Um maybe in 2015 or something, the, the 2015 KBC Augusta tournament, he'd done, uh, you know, we both mutually agreed that it would be great to do some airification. I forget if it was Holotine or solotide in, in June or early July. Then he rushed to get it ready for the tournament the last week of August. I was there measuring with the stint meter and and i wasn't measuring the bauble test at that time but i could see some snaking and i noticed that pointed it out to andrew and i'm like i think maybe you shouldn't be punching so many holes and and his justification was i uh i'm really concerned about the infiltration rate and he's he's really cut back on punching holes and actually, he told me recently. I, I think he told me this year that there just haven't been big issues with infiltration rates. So it turned out mm-hmm. he was quite concerned about it, but then it uh, it turned out to not be a big deal. Because like, if it rains hard enough that they get water puddling on the greens that you can't play, the whole course is unplayable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not it's not that the greens would be unplayable and the rest of the course is playable, right? So yeah, so. It, it, it,
1: this example that I gave of that tournament we had this year where they quickly became unplayable and the, and we had to stop golf. There was no lightning. The, it was really almost not even raining hard enough that, that you would have had to stop play, but they had to stop play because this, this surface uh, water was, that is just such a rarity that I don't know if a person could ever, or would ever want to account for that. And, and honestly, once, you know, so yes, because the course was full and they were playing a tournament, all the golfers had to leave. They went in and they were in for an hour, hour and a half, or whatever it was. By the time they went back out, it continued to rain, and the and the greens were 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 perfectly playable. So, yeah, I you know if if um, if I'm putting together the things that a golfer is going to um vote on let's say vote with or the, the the type of course conditions that they're going to um see and make a note of and decide whether the course is good because of that i think that infiltration would fall pretty low on that list and it probably would be in some category that doesn't doesn't even come into account unless there's some weird situation like we had during that tournament this year And, you know, that was the only time in nine years that I've been here that we've had that situation uh, come up. So I suppose, and to me, that wouldn't be enough of a reason to needle time on a regular basis to avoid that one in nine years or one in 10 years type of situation. And again, and I'm not saying people shouldn't, you know, if I'm not saying people shouldn't do it, but as I made the statement earlier, if you're going to do it, then I think you should really know the reason you are. the reason for that, you know, know what it is. If somebody comes to you and says, why are you doing this? Be able to tell them exactly why you're doing it. And if infiltration is one of those reasons, then I think that's just fine. But you have to assess whether that's a need at your course or not, I guess.
0: Yeah. I, I used to think I knew what it was accomplishing, which is why I recommended it. And, uh, and now I'm, it's, it's sort of like yeah, you're punching a hole. You're sort of making it easier for water to go in, but does it does it do anything for the long term health of the of the sward? I I'm not nearly as confident about that as I used to be. All right, uh, Chris, I thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we covered your report and a lot more that uh, exceeded my expectations for the the quantity of things we could talk about and the great uh, advice and questions we got from from people in the comments so I if if anybody hasn't noticed I'm uh, trying to do a little bit more on YouTube produce a little bit more video content and one of the series this is going to be a series the uh, ATC office hours where I occasionally can meet with some people and talk about some technical things. I, I guess kind of like things that, that we'd have on a one-on-one conversation, mm-hmm. like, like I do with many of you, with many of you in the chat, um, but just make some of this information public uh, and just put it out there for future reference. Um, so it's, it's good. I, I really appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. And
1: yeah, well, uh, thanks. Thanks for inviting me, I guess. Honored to be the first the first uh, uh, participant in the uh, invitee in the uh, office hours.
0: I have some exciting news. I I invited Tom Cook and uh, he said yes, but we we haven't quite sorted out the time to do it. But I'm uh, uh, I'm excited to talk with Tom Cook about lawns in the Pacific Northwest and turf grass ecology. So hopefully he'll be here on, on office hours sometime.
1: It's a, it's a great, it's a great venue. There, there are, you know, there are many of these out there and, um, you know, podcasts and, and such. And, and some of them are, are great information, but you, they're, they're over so quickly, you sort of want more. And it's nice to do sort of these long form, um, I think discussions, and you know, some people may look at them and think, oh, "I don't have time for that." Um, I, here, here's how I, I oftentimes look at a podcast and I think, "Oh, it's ninety minutes. I don't have time for that." But um, then I, when I watch it, it's almost always worth my time. So, um, you know, I, I also, and I know you do this, Micah, but I, I do with podcasts and, and videos the option to speed them up to, you know, a one and a quarter speed or one and a half speed is um is really a great way to be able to listen to more content in a shorter period of time so if you look at something and it's two hours and you think i don't have time for that speed it up Um, your ears will quickly and your brain will quickly um adapt to that that speed and um and i think you'll it'll share it'll save you time which we all know is as valuable as anything
0: uh, yeah i that's a great idea and i re- i do that all the time i i try to consume as much material because i want to know what people are talking about what uh, the new information is that, that's being shared so i try to read and listen to as much as i can and speeding it up works great so that should do good with us because i think i don't i don't talk at a very rapid pace uh, so so i think people can ease it probably sounds better when you, when you listen to mine at one and a half speed. And yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for joining in the chat and for watching this live. Uh, that, w- that was awesome. So uh, thanks everyone. And I guess for everybody in the United States, have a great Thanksgiving week. That's a, a lovely holiday and um, I'll be enjoying it in Bangkok.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, get to sleep, get some sleep, Micah. And, you know, to everybody who is, able to join in. Thanks so much for listening and hope you have a great day. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye.